Welcome to the podcast, uh, Stella and Jennifer. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Stella and Jennifer are with DD Cap Group, who have been an RFI member since 2016. Uh, you were the first member. You've done a lot throughout the years to support our work. So first off, thank you for that. We're excited to be here on the podcast announcing DDCAP's case study, which is available now on the RFI website at www.rfi-foundation.org and on the DDCAP website at www.ddcap.co.uk. I'd recommend the case study as a good example on how an SME can approach responsible finance. Stella, uh, you were on the podcast about a year ago describing some of the sustainable and responsible actions, SRA, that are expanded upon and have been supplemented with other actions in, and are described in the case study. Could you give a quick overview about who DDCAP is within the Islamic finance market? And each of you, could you give uh, an overview of your roles at DDCAP? Sure. Um, I'll start, if I may. So DDCAP, I, I'm so used to saying that we're headquartered in London with offices in the DIFC in Dubai and in Kuala Lumpur. Actually, I don't know where we're quite headquartered anymore. Like everybody else, we're working remotely. It all seems very seamless with our colleagues nowadays because we seem to be everywhere globally at the same time. But since 1998, when we were formed, we have been headquartered in London. Um, we're a market intermediary and a financial technology solutions provider. And we aspire to connect the global Islamic financial marketplace responsibly. So we've more than 20 years experience. And during that time, we've provided asset facilitation services to institutional clients. Uh, and again, we do that from um, a sustainable, responsible actions platform. We work with conventional banks and Islamic banks. All in all, um, DDCAP facilitates to over 300 financial sector clients worldwide. And that's across a diverse range of Sharia compliant products, asset classes and instruments in both the primary and the secondary markets. Uh, outside of DDCAP, we have two operating subsidiaries, DDGI and DDCO Limited, which are wholly owned. And together that forms the DDCAP group. Uh, I'm the managing director of DDCAP. I've had that pleasure and privilege since 1998. So as managing director, it's my role to oversee all our global offices and also um, the subsidiary activity that we have worldwide. And, and you, Jennifer? My name is Jennifer Schoenberg. I'm an associate director and the head of corporate responsibility for DDCAP. I joined DDCAP in 2017, so about two and a half years ago with a legal background and experience in uh, Sharia compliant financing. And I joined to take a commercial role. Um, I've always had an interest in sustainable finance and responsible business. And I came into a firm with an MD who had a very proactive approach to sustainability and responsibility. And in there, whilst I was in with a commercial role, that interest found a home. And my roles evolved beyond originally what was envisioged from that original scope two and a half years, because as DDCAP's Sustainable and Responsible Actions Program, as the SRA expanded, and as the focus has evolved further, so has my role and, and my responsibilities. So it's very different from what we were in, envisioned in 2017. Absolutely. I was delighted to have Jennifer join DDCAP because I've been, apart from being managing director, as Jennifer said, we've been shaping uh, our additional SRA strategy um, within the boundaries of, of, of what we do. So since 1998, we've been a DD Cap, a Sharia compliant firm, and we've evolved our offerings and the governance um, pillars that we have to support our offerings to clients. Across the years when we started out, for example, 
as an intermediary serving predominantly banks and financial institutions with their own Sharia boards. We didn't have our own. And yet in 2012, we realised that in the interests of, of governance and best practice um, and looking at things through slightly different spectacles, having just come out of a global financial crisis, that actually that was naive of us. And in order to assure our clients and ensure that we were upholding best practice in terms of, of Sharia governance, we should have our own committee, which was convened in, in 2012. And really, um, alongside that, we've evolved our, our SRA theme. Uh, initially, I guess, um, under my stewardship as the managing director and also reporting in directly to buy in the agreement, the shareholders and the board. Um, but in recent times, since Jennifer joined us, you know, she's evolved a completely different role as head of um, corporate responsibility at DDCAP. So I can sit back and relax a little more as, as, as Jennifer's steering and driving ahead a lot of our initiatives nowadays. To bring listeners up to speed on the latest news from DDCAP uh, relating to your SRA is you becoming a signatory to the Principles for Responsible Banking. You've been a signatory to the Principles for Responsible Investment for several years. I think the first question that many people listening may have is why you've made these commitments uh, since you're not a traditional signatory to either of those uh, initiatives uh, as a financial market intermediary. You're not an asset manager or an asset owner or a bank. How does DDCAP fit within these principles? It's a really good question. As I've mentioned just now, you know, so we, we started to, to set ourselves out on a, a slightly different trajectory and, and, and pathway after we convened our, our Sharia Supervisory Board, our in-house Sharia Supervisory Board in 2012. And they also caused the senior executive to reflect on our business and look at our approach to doing business in a slightly different way. And we, as a firm, were embedding policies and procedures um, and developing relationships in such a way that, that we were increasingly pushing forward the importance of sustainable, responsible actions within our culture and our business practice and within our, in our engagement with third parties. Um, and you mentioned um, that we became a, a, an RFI member. Um, and it's interesting that we were looking in the interests of making sure that we, as an SME, because we were very fortunate to have been around for 20 years and, and have a lot of outreach and, and a diverse client base, but we still consider ourselves an SME in global terms. Um, it was important for us to have the guidance and the oversight that we needed in, in developing our pathway into sustainable and responsible actions. And so we looked towards the PRI. Um, now, the PRI uh, is the world's leading proponent of responsible investment, and the PRI works to understand the investment implications of environmental, social and governance factors. And it also works in support of its international signatories who are incorporating those ESG factors into their own decisions. And you're quite right. Principally, the PRI is there for asset managers and asset owners um, who are looking at incorporating ESG into those ownership and, and asset ownership and, and investment management decisions. Uh, but it also has a category for service providers. And as an intermediary, um, we see very much that we are a service provider to our client base and a service provider to uh, the Islamic and, and responsible financial sector. And we found that there was a role for us as a, as a, as a signatory. Initially, we were looking to step into the PRI and to work to become um, a service provider signatory in such a way that we could evolve our own processes. 
but actually we found ourselves becoming a signatory at a very interesting time because when we first uh, when we first joined which was 2016 it was very interesting to look at processes of reporting which at that point were voluntary and since then reporting on SRA development and ESG adherence has become a mandatory thing so we've always reported voluntarily it's now mandatory reporting and it's quite interesting now that our perspectives as a service provider to the Islamic financial sector, alongside all those other signatories who come from various ESG subsets, um, have a place, we believe. And we, as a, an SME and an intermediary firm, have probably something through our observations to, and our, our comments and our reporting to contribute back to the PRI and its membership. Jennifer might want to, want to add more. No, I, I completely agree with what you've said, Stella. Um, and during the past 18 months, as, as you and I have both, we've both enjoyed greater engagement with the PRI regionally, meeting with some of our reps in the UK and discussing more about the value that the service provider community provides to the greater signatory base and how we as an SME signatory and given our role also within Sharia compliant and Islamic finance, how we can broaden that dialogue. Um, we know that there are some engagements that they're looking at. There's various engagements that we've taken place with um, or surveys that we've responded back to and other forms of engagement with regard to revamping or um, updating some of the reporting requirements. And we're very happy with some of the proposals that are being made. But we do think there are definitely some discussions about how the PRI can greater work with the signatories, uh, with service providers and how we can work with them. I have to say that within, within our industry space as well, there's um, a lot of encouragement and, and support that can be found. And, and if I think back to um, our applying to become a signatory of, of PRI, I might have thought initially that's quite a large leap for an Islamic financial sector SME to make. And although we were the first Islamic intermediary to become a PRI signatory, actually there are some very fine Islamic financial sector institutions that are signatories. There's a few more that have joined since we did um, but a lot of the encouragement that I had to take the step and to apply came from um, fellow RFI member firm Segco which is a, a best breed asset management firm um, and my colleague and friend Hassan Al-Jabri um, who's a CEO at the top of that group who actually said come on Stella you know you know you're doing this you're doing this within the firm take a leap of faith now and go out and 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 do this and and, and commit and report and show what you can add. Yeah, I think you've uh, you've been doing that and, and it's described in more detail in the case study. Uh, you've addressed some of the, the compliance obligations related to the PRI commitment by adding and supplementing to the standard uh, client contract. So it's actually really being embedded in your business practice. What type of feedback have you received from that? Has it been, been mostly positive or negative? Do you think it's being uh, overlooked by most Islamic financial institutions? I think we've we've seen some very positive feedback on that first. I mean, uh, Stella, will, when we first decided to put this in, we put it in di um, bilateral documentation for ease of, for feasibility. It's more challenging when you're looking at a broader capital market or syndicated deals, and you're looking with working with lead arranging banks, and so there are more players that you have to bring to the table in broader discussions. So we thought if we were going to roll this out and bring this to market to see what the first, what the reaction would be. We would do it with the bilateral, we did it with bilateral structures first. And the feedback, the acceptance rate was practically, it was universal. 
the feedback was great. And after a year of bringing it in, um, we've now expanded into more capital market transactions and syndicated deals. And the feedback that we get from, from international law firms, from the banks, um, and from all parties is, is positive. And they're happy to see that it's being done rather than the beginning where it was just accepted. We're actually now getting positive feedback. And just stepping back, could you give a, a real quick overview of what what that uh, what that inclusion uh, is designed to do? The SRA clause uh, says that the that GDCAP is a PRI signatory, and um, and that it will do nothing that contravenes either the its signatory status or the values embedded in its sustainable and responsible actions program. Absolutely. Um, in 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 terms of of uptake and acceptance of our clausing. We've actually had a few a few compliments when we've suggested that we wanted to add it. You know, we, we have had a, a little bit of reticence around it from, from time to time, mainly from uh, advisors asking, why is this going in? You know, can you support it? Can you show us a little bit more substance about why DDCAT wants to include this sort of language? Um, and by and large, you know, not too much pushback. As Jennifer said, it translates more readily initially um, during the, the sort of rollout phase, for want of a better description, into bilateral documentation. Um, but we are taking it further as well. What is interesting now is that even going back to the onboarding stage, because this, this is something that we're doing with, with clients that we are active with, so new documentation, new facilities. But when we are looking to form new relationships with, with new clients, the whole um, matter of expanding the due diligence inquiries beyond regular financial practice and regular governance expectations into ESG type or, or SRI type considerations is becoming far, far more common practice. Not surprisingly, given that um, for a few years now, since 2017, in Malaysia, Bank Nagar has rolled out values-based intermediation, um, which uh, encompasses uh, input from a whole number of, of, of Malaysian banks. You know, I think a firm such as ours should expect to see those sort of diligence inquiries now from the onboarding stage. Now, if a relationship is formed from, from the basis of understanding on both sides, yeah, we're going to ask you about your environmental and social considerations in your approach to governance with regard to those disciplines. And we're going to respond and we can show some substance around what we do, some track record and um, a sustained initiative that's based on strategy and internal policy as well. Um, then that sets us up well for the future relationship. And one would envisage that when it actually comes to entering into contractual arrangements and documentation, the insertion of, of language and clauses such as the one that Jennifer's just described is not going to be so much of a surprise and it will actually be expected of us. Delving a little bit more into the, into the, the forward-looking part of that, of uh, starting to include the, the clause in uh, beyond bilateral contracts and in capital markets instruments. A few weeks ago, during a webinar on ESG and Islamic finance, Stella, you mentioned that there was a possible gap in the green screening criteria based on maybe an overlooking of the, the structure of how Islamic finance uh, structures uh, transactions. Uh, could you give an example of where, where you explained that there may be a gap in the standards governing green sukuk in particular? Sure. In terms of in terms of the green sukuk that have been issued so far, and there haven't been a, a huge amount of them yet, but a lot of them, particularly those that have been issued out of Southeast Asia or by Southeast Asian issuers, tend to have 
um, followed the green bond principles that were um, established by ICMA and are known for Sharia compliant issuances as the green Sukuk principles. Um, so they tend to apply the same sort of disciplines um, as conventional issuers are, are doing in their, in their green bond issuance and looking at um, deployment of proceeds, looking at the sort of projects that proceeds that have been raised are invested into and whether they are green and sustainable and all the things that you might expect. And the way in which that is done, I mean, in some instances, there is self-certification self by issuers, but it's fairly commonplace, particularly with the benchmark issues and, 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 and sovereign transactions, to see second party advisory firms come in and um, validate um, those transactional structures from a green perspective and also the investments that are going to be made with the, with the proceeds raised. One of the questions that we've been mulling over ourselves within DDCAP actually relates to the contractual arrangements that support the issuance of the Sukuk. Because if you look at a Sukuk as opposed to a bond, that's where it gets different. I mean, we read all sorts and, you know, we comment if we don't have a lot of time and we say, look, in terms of a green Sukuk, you're taking the same investment sort of approach as you are with green bonds, with the, the deployment of proceeds and so on into green sustainable projects. But there it ends. You know, a bond is a straight financial instrument, whereas a Sukuk is supported with assets. And quite often those assets can include commodities. They can include other sort of real estate type assets and it is interesting to see whether those assets or, or how highly those assets are, are registering um, in the focus of the independent firms that are validating the complete Sukuk issuance structure. Uh, because to DDCAP's way of thinking, the actual construction of the Sukuk itself and a review of the assets that compile the asset base or the, the asset base that supports the Sukuk issuance are equally important. Um, I suspect that that is a matter probably dealt with between the issuer and the second party validators who I'm sure are going into this in great detail or probably with the issuer's advisors, um, be it lawyers or, or, or advisory firms. But as this market progresses, I would expect that there is a lot of inquiry of firms such as ours, just to look in the construction of the underlying asset program that supports the issuance. So whereas we're not suggesting in any way that this isn't getting due attention, I don't think it's, it's registering to the degree it needs to because right now, and I was on a webinar a couple of weeks ago that was focused on, on um, Sharia compliant investment and financing structures um, and, and their interaction and connection to other ESG subsets. I think there were over, over 350 major institutional investors, large financial institutions who dialed into that. And they were still really on the point, many of them, of wanting to know how you construct a Sukuk um, and, 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 and what it really means. And, 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 and rolling on from sort of five years ago when we were looking at Sukuk against bonds or 10 years ago and, and in major institutional investors just really looking yield and whether seeing whether they could get some sort of arbitrage on return from a conventional bond against a Sukuk. These investors are looking to make sure that everything fits in terms of their ESG criteria. So this is a matter that we believe we need to get out in the open and make sure it's being dealt with now 
rather than something that pops up and materializes, you know, when there's been an awful lot more green stock issued and we realize that nobody's actually taken notice of the asset composition um, that supports the cyclic itself. And so presumably that same type of issue would be, would apply in the social, social sukuk issuance that we're seeing, not social sukuk yet, but social bonds being issued in greater numbers uh, to respond to, to COVID-19. Yeah, for sure. I think anything where there is, uh, um, where there is asset backing or asset base for a, for a Sharia compliant instrument it needs to be it needs to be scrutinized and validated in the same way that that we would i mean the way that i look at it is that in terms of a any sort of sukuk that comes to the market the sharia committee and 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 the relevant advisories to the issue will be looking at the component parts of that sukuk and and the construction of the contract that will be in a sharia compliance sense equally important never mind what's what's sort of happening with proceeds post issuance um, but when you bring the two together, it's really so very important that there's, there's proper scrutiny, whether it's, whether it's something that's for, for social impact or, or for green projects from, from, from nose to tail, effectively, from the, the start of, of, of the issuance through to, to the completion and the full deployment and allocation of the proceeds. And you mentioned that that uh, would be something uh, generally handled by the second party opinion giver. Do you think that that, uh, that there needs to be some some work done to see how that how that operates in practice before it can be implemented into the into the standards like the ECMA green and social bond standards that you mentioned. Mm. Well, I, I think and um, the the green and social bond standards it's not considered because the focus there and the focus of the standard setters are what's happening in terms of deployment and allocation and in terms of a greens to cook. Yes, from a Sharia perspective the asset composition. So in all of these green issuance, there is certainly Sharia review of what's happening in the underlying asset composition for the Sukuk. There is certainly Sharia review of that. If we're involved in a transaction, it will be by our own Sharia supervisory board because they'll look at all of our transactions and those that are appointed by the issuer uh, and by the other parties who are involved in the transaction. But as far as I am aware, Typically, third-party Sharia advisors are not necessarily mandated right now to look from an ESG perspective. Now, what I would say is that we actually have a, a, an SRI champion on our Sharia board. He's Dr. Mohamed um, Akram Laldin um, uh, from Malaysia. And, and we are privileged indeed that not only is he a full member of the Sharia Supervisory Board, but he has uh, taken up the challenge of being our, our champion for, for um for SRI as well. So he does look at that from our perspective. So from our own comfort and making sure that we're adhering to requisite governance standards, we are looking for ourselves. So that is part of our discipline. We will look now in our underlying composition from, from both ESG and Sharia perspectives, but we're not yet being asked by third parties. And we just expect that that's something that's coming. So we, have, we are having discussions separately um, bilaterally in most instances with, with standard setters and also independent firms that are validating. And, and we're just making sure that we flag that up really more than anything else, because I think it's, it's just a slight misconnection where these different subsets of SRI are coming together rather than something that's not being done for, for, any, for any reason. It's just potentially something that's being overlooked. Yeah, it's, it's not something that's uh, addressed and contemplated in the in the current standard, so it, it's better to 
better to proactively sure. address it, it than to wait yeah. for it to come it, an issue. It's something I think that only we can bring from our sector, from the Sharia compliance sector, because we understand the requirements of the other ESG groups that we're working with and investors, and we understand really what we should be saying, really. To, and it, it just elevates those standards still further and, and gives ever, others ever greater governance assurance. Yeah. Jennifer, do you have anything uh, to, to add on to that? What you've seen from the, the legal side of any issues that has raised or may raise in the future? No, I completely support Stella and what she had said. And, and you do see that we just, it's one of those points that we need to move forward with and we need to engage with the industry. I think where we might accelerate the connection, because we talked a lot about the PRI and we've said that um, it's the world's leading proponent of responsible investment. Um, but, you know, in Islamic finance, we remain a market that's overweighted to banks and banking practice. So we're pretty excited um, by the um, PRB, Principles of Responsible Banking, that um, after several years of planning, started out properly and actively on its mission in September of last year, um, with uh, signatories including the UK's Islamic Gatehouse Bank, also CIMB has found a signatory out of, out of Malaysia. But again, we're delighted to have become a stakeholder endorser of, um, of PRB, along with the UK Islamic Finance Council. Um, and we see that given the profile and the composition of our industry subset, we think probably that this and the standards and the work that PRB does in the fullness of time is going to be very relevant to the Islamic financial sector and its practices, particularly, obviously, its banking practices. I mean, I know, Blake, that RFI has been doing quite a lot of work there um, since you shared a panel, I think, um, and, and discussed PRB a couple of years ago before it was, it was fully formed. And all inclination at the moment is that PRB is going to be very welcoming of um, Islamic financial sector signatories and also is already fully cognizant of the contribution that Islamic banks pay to the wider global financial marketplace. Yeah, and we did see an explicit mention of, of Islamic banking in the, the guiding document from PRB when it was first uh, put out for comment, which was encouraging to see. And we were, I think, thankful to have CIMB, whose uh, subsidiary CIMB Islamic is an, another RFI member, uh, be involved in the, the creation of that. I think to, to wrap up the podcast and, and We've covered a lot of ground today. One of the things that, that comes through really strongly in the in the case study is that DDCAP is an SME and has found a way through through its work, through its focus in the Islamic finance industry to make a, a really big contribution that can can inspire other SMEs that are looking to potentially follow uh, follow that lead. What message do you share with other SMEs in financial services? who may, maybe don't think they're big enough to have an impact, and where, where should they start their responsible finance journey? In terms of being an SME, sometimes, and I mentioned our pathway, sometimes it can be daunting, particularly when, when you're looking for, for leadership from others in terms of best practice organisations becoming a member. And, and I'm sure with PRI as well, when we've sometimes been challenged by reporting um, and we're far more engaged around the reporting standard and the questions that are asked and when when they ask for feedback on those how easy it is to report because when we first started it occurred to us that it would be very very uh, smaller firms that perhaps didn't have um, English or business English as a language to actually report when it went to mandatory status 
Um, and it would be even more difficult for those that weren't from the conventional financial marketplace. And, you know, sometimes you do have to have the courage of your convictions, as, as Hassan said to me, and step up because everybody can contribute in a small way. And my belief is that everybody can do something. So as SMEs, all of us can individually contribute something of value thing, and you might not be able to lead, but you will find that you have a perspective that contributes. And as others join, so others from your immediate locality, whether it's your home country or whether it's from Islamic finance or whether it's from a particular sector market that you work within, as they become aligned to, to your thoughts as well, collectively and collaboratively, I think there are few limits to what can be achieved because it's, it's a growing force. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing. That's what we've seen with SRI profiled outlook and we'll continue to see it. And I think as we go through this horrendous crisis at the moment, you know, we're probably going to come out on the other side of that. And it's going to be the first time that we actually have seen world economies having to be recapitalized. You know, we've seen countries and sectors and industries and so on in the past, but this is a whole different ball game. And even from the things that we're hearing at the moment, you know, if, if, if aviation sector requires bailout from governments, it's interesting that governments are building in climate change considerations into looking at, at, at the terms of those. So I think in, in another way that although some may be worried that this crisis is going to cause as people and countries and economies try to survive, it's going to put ESG considerations on the back burner. In other ways, I think it's going to bring it absolutely to the forefront. And again, the role that SME and the players that support from the very foundation stones of economies can have to play in these sort of dialogues and shaping future direction is very important. But Jennifer, as far as DD Caps concerned, you know, you, you came in, I've, I've been with DD Caps since we started to shape this policy and strategy and our, our culture as an SME. But I think it'd be quite useful if you could just add your reflections from what you see in terms of us as a firm and a community and, and, and how we've approached this within our, our own community and with our colleagues. As I mentioned previously, you know, we, we've been, GDCAP has benefited from having a, direct, a managing director who had great vision and great passion for what has become the SRA program. And it started up very much as a top-down initiative, and it came in with, with seeding of a few projects and then bringing in board approval. And I think what we're now, it's in its later stages that we're really engaging the entire firm and that we're bringing everybody in to show how their individual role helps to support and reflect these corporate values. And I think we look at that perhaps over this past two and a half years, the, the corporate culture has changed. As we've gone and brought that sustainability and responsibility message out through the firm, it's created more of a dialogue and a very different culture. And I think in times, for especially of an SME, because it doesn't matter if you're 40 or 40,000, messages don't always trickle down as you would you would expect in a smaller company. So to bring out that message when you're comfortable and you and you have your vision and you have your goal, to start bringing that into into your culture and bring that into your employees as soon as you have that have that vision because the SMEs will be pleasantly surprised how much how their teams will latch on and be excited and enthused and then actually give the project and give the, the culture more momentum and to help show you ideas of where they feel that even in their, they know their roles, they know their focus, where they can come and expand and help bring forward this, this new normal. And especially for us, um, everyone will have, you know, we're not the only SME who are, we're all, we're, as Stella mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we are 
we're scattered across a, a small geographic area and we're scattered around the world. And when we come back, we will have new, we'll have new ideas, we'll have new experiences, we'll all be slightly changed from this. And it's a great time to begin that dialogue again for us as DDCAP and for other SMEs who are now going to begin to look at this journey of what their new normal to be, to incorporate sustainability and responsibility and climate change and to keep that dialogue open. When you're looking at your stakeholders, it's just don't, don't spend so much time focusing on your shareholders and your board and your client perspective. And don't forget to bring in um, your colleagues and, and your working community until you're a long way across the path. Because I think when you set out on something new, look, DDCAP's always been a Sharia compliant firm since its inception. We work with um, the Sharia compliant marketplace. Everybody gets that, you know, from the managing director to the new intern, everybody gets that. Everybody is duly respectful of it. But SRA was completely new to quite a lot of people. And although, although they all knew what it was and they could read about it, actually feeling that culture um, within the firm um, took a while for some more than others. And, and they questioned, you know, what impact is this going to have? Is, is it going to have impact on, on our approach to, um, you know, to, to Sharia compliant matters? Or is it going to have commercial impact? And all the questions that everybody else is asking. But if you can focus, and this is where perhaps it is a little bit easier. You know, we're not a global institution. We're an SME with sort of 50 people worldwide rather than 50,000. The quicker you can get buy-in from your working community as an SME, the quicker you can really leverage your contribution and, cre and, and create more impact. We've truly found that. Um, and that's been um, a particular initiative of the last couple of years and making sure that absolutely everybody is included and that there is a forum within the firm that is directly linked to SRA that allows absolutely everybody to have their say. I think that's what I've uh, been most struck by uh, seeing the development uh, of of your work in this area as well as uh, as other developments has been that it's not a it's not a checklist to to go through it's a dynamic process that, that requires that change of culture which requires a broad broad engagement but i think in in a time like today and i think the today the bank of england was saying this is the worst economic crisis at least for the uk in 300 years where there's there needs to be that new new way of thinking for the future uh, having a culture that, that builds builds this engagement in as part of it is going to be very valuable uh, going forward. Thank you for joining. I would urge everyone to to listen to the to listen to this podcast and then go download the case study. And how how else uh, should people stay engaged in building building upon the example that DDCAP has set in the SME space? How can they how can they take the next step? Um, number of ways. First of all, do reach out to us individually. We're, we're happy to share. You know, we might not be engaged with business to those who reach out, but I think we often find that there are common interests and, and ways in which we can we can collaborate and so on, as I've mentioned before, for impact. So we'd be very happy to be contacted directly. Um, look, this is an RFI podcast, and I would also encourage other SMEs to refer back directly to RFI. Now, we were we were the first member and our membership is a few years old now and is, is at a time where we became signatory of PRI as well. But RFI has come a long way, has a dynamic of its own, is an absolutely brilliant place for SMEs that are either directly from the Islamic financial marketplace or are from another SRI subset who are inquiring and looking at Islamic financial practice to find 
a forum for connection, for dialogue, for awareness, and also to be proactive, because one thing that we like at RFI is putting members and their workforce to um, proactive good use for RFI and its initiatives as well. So I would certainly recommend that because I can't, I can't think of any other forum right now that offers two SMEs who are working across the whole ESG subsets, including Sharia compliant finance, a platform in the way that the RFI does. Thank you. And thank you for joining. And we look to see a lot more from DDCAB. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Responsible Finance Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean. If you want to stay updated about RFI's work, you can find the link to subscribe to our newsletter on our Twitter feed, at RFI Foundation. You can also follow me, at Sharing Risk, and find us on LinkedIn. Hope you'll join us for our next podcast.